Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There have been two huge waves of immigration to the United States. First, in the years around 1900, massive numbers of Europeans came over, settling into the cities of the East and Midwest. Then, in the late 20th century, another wave of immigration crested, this time mostly people from Latin America and Asia, and this time with much more restrictive laws. And yet, a new book, Streets of Gold, argues that there are surprising, almost shocking similarities between immigrants then and immigrants now. And not just that both groups like to claim they showed up with $20 in their pockets and made their own way, but also that the children of immigrants really do prosper. We talk about the new data on immigration after this news. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The authors of Streets of Gold want to rebuild the story of immigration to America from the ground up, using a century and a half of data to explore the lives of immigrants and their children. Their conclusions call into question big national narratives about early 20th century immigration from Europe and later immigration from other countries but also the family stories that lionize our penniless parents and grandparents who came to America and made good. They've built this new analysis over a massive novel data set culled from the genealogy website Ancestry and linked to other kinds of documentation like the U.S. Census and tax records. This is a big, exciting book. The authors join us for the hour. Leah Bustan, professor of economics and director of the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. Welcome. Great to be here. And Run Abramitsky, professor of economics and senior associate dean for the social sciences at Stanford University. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Run, why don't we start with you? What kind of intervention did you want to make with this book? Like, what what did you want to say about immigration based on this new data? Yes, so our book is about immigration in the U.S., and it's really a result of 15 years of research that Leah and I have been doing together. We kind of wanted to bring data and long-term perspective on the immigration debate, which is often based on fear and on anecdotes rather than on facts. So we often hear this nostalgic view that European immigrants assimilated in the past very quickly. And this is in contrast to new immigrant groups today that do not even attempt to assimilate. And this is where the phrase streets of gold, the title of our book came from. It was a shorthand for the idea that you could arrive in the US with nothing and mm-hmm. moves quickly from 
rags to riches. But we, of course, chose the title for a different reason, because an unknown immigrant in the 1900s said something like, I came to America because I heard the streets there were paved with gold. But when I got here, I found out three things. First, the streets were not paved with gold. <laughs> Second, they were not paved at all. And third, I was the one expected to pave them. Yeah. So, so basically, you know, we build this new data on millions of immigrant lives to reassess common myths about uh, immigration and the American dream uh, over two centuries. You know, things like, is it really true that today's immigrants are less upwardly mobile than past immigrants? And is it really true that today's immigrants are less likely to become Americans? And is it really true that the uh, immigrants uh, steal the jobs and reduce the wages of the US born? And so that's kind of what we said to do. You can think of us like the curious grandchildren searching for their grandparents and now multiply these efforts by by millions. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Uh, Leah Bustan, let's talk a little bit about that earlier wave of immigrants. Where did they come from? And what were those countries like? I'm particularly interested in your depiction of Norway in the book, which I think a lot of people forget was a very poor European country when a lot of Norwegian immigrants were coming to the U.S. That's right. If we go back to the Ellis Island generation, immigrants that were coming to the United States around 100 years ago, almost all of them were coming from European countries, around 90%. And the other 10% were coming from Canada. And so immigrants to the U.S. back then um, were more similar to the U.S. born in terms of their culture and their country of origin, uh, being primarily from Europe. Um, but within Europe, there were some very rich countries uh, that were either richer than the U.S. or sort of neck and neck. And those would be countries like um, in the U.K. or Germany. Um, and then there were some countries that were quite poor on the European periphery, um, like Norway, um, like Italy. And so we may think of Norway today as one of the richest countries in the world. But at the time, it was very agricultural and rural and quite poor. Um, so the immigrants who came from Europe at the time um, were really just like the Statue of Liberty said, the tired, poor, huddled masses from European societies. They tended to come from families where their parents did not hold high occupations or own land. But we do have to remember that Europe was still relatively rich in comparative terms at the time in global sense. Mm -hmm. um, so they certainly were not coming from the poorest countries in the world at that time. And what happens to those people, that first generation? Well, we have this image of rags to riches, I think, uh, from that period 100 years ago. Um, and we think of immigrants from Europe as arriving at Ellis Island with just a few dollars in their pocket. But what we found in the data is that that vision, that nostalgic vision of the past is wrong in two different ways. First of all, many of the immigrants from Europe were not in rags. Mm -hmm. Around half of them came from those richer countries that I mentioned, um, like England or Germany, and they already started out in occupations that earned more than the U.S. born. And then for immigrants who are coming from poorer countries, sure, many of them did start poor, um, but they did not catch up to U.S.-born workers in their own lifetime. So they did not go from rags to riches in one generation. Um, this idea that immigrants themselves could move from the mailroom up to the boardroom um, did not happen very often. And it was really only when you get to the second generation, to the children of immigrants, 
where success was really taking off. Hmm. Ron Abramitsky, why don't you tell us about the the later wave, uh, the other part of what you describe as this immigration you, uh, where we have a, a broader variety of immigrants from around the world coming and settling in the U.S. Yes, yeah, so despite the fact that there is a lot more variety and immigrants today come from all over the world relative to mostly Europeans in the past, we kind of tend to find a very comparable story of immigration in the past and today. And one way to think about it is that uh, immigration has always been a novel rather than a short story. So the first part of the novel, if you want, is immigrants come often from poorer sending country and by coming to the US, they double or more than double their incomes. Mm. Then the second part, well, they somewhat converge with US born workers, but there is no regs to reach us, as Leah explained. And often uh, people, you know, immigrants stay in uh, manual labor, uh, manual jobs for the rest, you know, for throughout their lives. And then the third part of the story, which is true both in the past and today, children of immigrants from almost every sending country are catching up both, both in the past and today. And so we find that the children of immigrants, both in the past and today, are very upwardly mobile, uh, just as upwardly mobile as immigrants in the Ellis Island era. Hmm. Leah, t- talk a little bit about the data that you base this on, because this is a new data set, you, and you put it together in a really interesting way. Can you describe how you did it? Well, maybe some of your listeners has, have gone to the website, Ancestry.com, and looked up their own relatives. Shout out you know, to so my mom. Can... Her, uh, her family tree is enormous on, on Ancestry. And yes, go, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've looked up my own family as well, and so has Ron. And so our family members are actually in our data set. Um, so our data set is like as if we went to Ancestry um, millions of times over and searched for every immigrant family um, that we could find and built out that family tree. Um, so if you go on Ancestry, you'll see that when you find a relative, it'll pop up some information for you from the U.S. Census. Um, you can look at the old census records and find out um, where did your relatives live? What was their occupation? Eventually, you can learn about their education level and their income um, and who else was living in the household with them, their children, and where did their children then move when they grew up? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're putting together information like you would for one's own family, but for as many family um, trees as we can. Um, and we were able to do this because Ancestry now has a uh, research partnership with academics. So we don't have to literally go and point and click on the website to find everyone. Um, but uh, initially, that's what we were doing. Um, mm-hmm. We were actually you know, pointing and clicking so many times, yeah, that Ancestry got alarmed and thought that there might be, um, you know, a rival website, a competitor that was trying to steal the data. Um, So one day, Ron got a a phone call um, in his office from the Ancestry lawyers telling us to uh, cease and desist, um, which was terrifying. We thought that our research projects were going to end before they really began, but we were able to come to a research agreement with them. Um, and now they, there are many academics who are working with data like this. Yeah, you know, they they, call, they told me, you seem to have a very large family. What are you doing over there at Stanford? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, well, you know, we are just social scientists trying to find some facts about immigration. You know, by the end of the phone call, you know, the lawyer was kind of like probing about uh, how Italian immigrants did relative to the Irish immigrants. So, we, I, you know, I knew that we are we are in good in good place, but it was yeah. uh, scary at the time. Ron, how were you then able to link? Once you've got the trees, you only have income 
incomes for certain years where that's available in the census, right? So then how are you able to take those names and those trees and, and find all this other data that you need to show the economic mobility of these different groups? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, so before you had the trees of ancestry, you could really just go to the census and you could see, say, the 100 million people uh, in the cross-section in one point in time. You get a snapshot of the census and you see uh, uh, families, but you can't really follow the same people over time. And that's what we needed to do in order to get to some of the conclusions that, that we get. But uh, of course, there is no, there wasn't social security number that we could link people mm-hmm. perfectly across population censuses. So what we instead did was, well, you know, if, if, if I know my name is Rana Bramitsky and I was born in Ireland in 1891 and came to the U.S. in 1900, I can then look in the next population census for another Rana Bramitsky who is born in Ireland in the same year. So we kind of linked people based on their first and last name and where they were born and the year when they were born. And that way we kind of created, if you want, genealogies of people that we can follow over them and their children over time. And that way we could ask questions like, like how the immigrants were doing over time, how their children eventually were doing, you know, who they married with and all all this other stuff that that we are doing. That's great. We're talking about the book Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success with the co-authors of that book, Ron Abramitsky, Professor of Economics and Senior Associate Dean for the Social Sciences at Stanford here in the Bay, and Leah Bustan, his uh, collaborator, Professor of Economics and Director of the Industrial Relations Section at Princeton. We, of course, do want to hear from you. About 30% of the Bay Area is immigrants. If you're a descendant of immigrants or an immigrant yourself, tell us about your experience with social and economic mobility. There's tons of these stories in the book, as well as the data. We want to hear yours. So give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. We're talking immigration, the data, lived experience. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the book Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success with co-authors Leah Bustan, professor of economics and director of the Industrial Relations Section at Princeton University, and Ron Abramitsky, professor of economics here at Stanford. We'd love to hear about your immigrant experience. What did you expect before you came here, and how were those 
expectations met or unmet. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Maybe taking us a little while to pick up, so have some have some patience. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. So I want to talk about a chart that's in this book, Leah. Uh, and for methodological reasons, fathers are the ones who are easier to track because of patriarchy <laughs> in the United States. Uh, women have tended to take men's name when they get married. It makes them harder to follow in the data. So you look at fathers and you look at fathers who are in the 25th percentile for income. And then you look at what happens to their children, both in the previous massive wave of immigration and also more recently. So when you do that, these relatively poor fathers, what happens to their children? Well, children of any father type do move up in the income distribution when they get to adulthood. Um, So children are not consigned to poverty. Uh, Those who are raised at the 25th percentile reach around the 45th, 46th percentile, the income distribution in adulthood. So that's close to the median, close to the average. But what's really interesting in the data that we put together is that children who are raised by immigrant fathers uh, move up farther and faster than uh, children who are raised by fathers who are U.S. born. Um, And so if the average child is reaching the 46th percentile, children of immigrants are reaching the 51st percentile. So they're getting up a little bit above average, even though they were raised in relative poverty. Um, So here we're able to compare households um, that have similar income levels when the children are young and follow what happens to those kids into adulthood and see that children of immigrants are achieving more social mobility. So what's really interesting is that this is going on in the Ellis Island generation for children of Irish or Italian or Portuguese immigrants. But it's also going on today and to the same degree. So it's going on for children of immigrants from all around the world. Um, The most rapid ascent is for children of immigrants from Asia. You know, it could be China, Hong Kong, Vietnam, etc. But it's also going on for children of immigrants from South America, from Central America, including some of those countries that um, politicians will point to today and say, that they're responsible for the quote-unquote crisis at the southern border. Um, So that could be Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala. So we were really quite struck by the similarities between past and present because I think we all have this image of the Ellis Island period as one of a lot of rapid success for Mm -hmm. these children um, that today we think, oh, maybe immigrants are lagging behind. Maybe their children aren't able to do as well. And we were really blown out of the water by the similarities. Yeah, I mean, these char- the charts look almost identical. I mean, the countries are, are different, but the charts look so, so similar. I mean, it's a very dorky thing to say, but I mean, those charts, when you saw them, were you like, well, this is basically a chart of what people have called the American dream? Yes, exactly. So that's what we, we thought. We thought, oh, it's exactly what people thought as the American dream, but somehow... Uh, People thought that the American dream was alive a hundred years ago, and today maybe it's uh, it's dead. But we kind of said, well, the American dream is just as alive today as it was a hundred years ago in a world where the children of uh, immigrants from Mexico and the Dominican Republic today are just as likely to move up from their parents' circumstances as were 
the children of poor Swedes and Danes a hundred years ago, uh, that's, uh, that to us suggested that the American dream is, is still alive. Of course, these are sort of relative measures, right? And inequality has increased in the United States pretty dramatically. So is it the same to be sort of median income uh, in 2022 as it was to be median income in, you know, 1922? No, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, so we're looking at relative position and sort of climbing up the social or economic ladder. Um, And so uh, someone who's median income in 1940 um, is actually earning more in um, constant dollars than someone who's median income today. Um, And so absolute income and how many resources a family has is also an important measure. Um, And that's not really captured in these relative positions. Um, We wanted to look at relative positions so we could compare easily over a century, though. Yeah. You know, there are some fascinating inter-country differences in this chart, too. Uh, In particular, I I wanted you to talk about the differences in uh, uh, income position between Caribbean sons and Caribbean daughters. In part because it really, you know, I think a lot of people, when you look at the chart of how Caribbean sons have done, you see there's Caribbean men uh, actually are the only groups that were lagging U.S. born um, upward mobility. You might just say like, okay, this is a simple story of anti-blackness. But then when you look at the daughters, you see that they actually have done very well. So how do you explain that and, and describe a little more for us? Yeah, so that's that's a that's a that's a tough that's a good question. You know, in the chart you are looking at from the book, you kind of stare at fifty sending countries of people who grew up poor. You know, to let's say today will be that uh, both parents work for minimum wage jobs, and you see that immigrants from nearly every sending country are more upwardly mobile than the children of the U.S. born, with the exception of. Uh, Immigrants, uh, children of immigrant, of sons of immigrants from Caribbean country like Haiti, Trinidad and Tobago, and Jamaica. But what's striking is that alongside it, you see the same picture for the daughters of immigrants. And as you say, you see that the daughters of immigrants from those Carib- poor Caribbean countries are actually more upwardly mobile than the daughters of of the U.S. born. And so this to us by a suggests- lot. By a lot. By, by a lot. Close, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. By a lot. It's not even close. And so this to, this suggested to us that uh, that the story of the Caribbean uh, sons has more to have more to do with the race in the U.S. rather than the immigration story. And that there is something about the interaction between uh, race and gender that, uh, that that explains uh, those results. What exactly this is, is something that uh, I guess more research is, is needed mm-hmm. on, but it was very striking to us uh, uh, that it's not as simple as, oh, you know, those immigrants, sons from Caribbean countries just can, can never make it into the United States and they will stay a permanent underclass. Well, look at their sisters, you know, their daughters are doing uh, remarkably well. So there is more and to the story. When we hear from sociologists who have done work on the West Indian community, they're really not that surprised by the pattern. Um, in fact, there um, are ethnographies that talk about differences in parenting practices uh, for sons and daughters in those households, and that daughters are more likely to be kept close to home, not allowed to go out at night. Um, there's concern about safety in the neighborhoods, whereas sons are given more freedom and latitude to go out into the neighborhood. And those neighborhoods are, are those um, that tend to be very over-policed, 
Um, and so there's a lot of police encounter um, and interaction with the criminal justice system. Um, so we do want to continue to look into this more in the data, but one suspicion that we have is that um, if a, a son of someone from the Caribbean is incarcerated at the moment when we are capturing their income in the data, they're going to show up as very low income or even zero income um, and are probably pulling the average down. So it has something to do um, likely with uh, incarceration. Mm, that's interesting. Um, Ron, I wanted to ask you, uh, what could explain the nature of this upward mobility. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of people who would want to say, well, this is like immigrant pluck and we'll, we'll certainly get to that. But you have some other explanations as well. Yes. So the, it's tempting to think and, and may as well be true. And I'm sure every, each of your listeners will have their own opinion about what's going on. It's tempting to think, you know, maybe it's education. Maybe they just care more about the education of their children, which is, which may as well be true today. In the past, we don't find that this is, this was true. Uh, it might be that, you know, those who make the move, those immigrants, they have such great ambition and they are so motivated that they and their children will be successful. And that may be, it may as well be true too. But what we find uh, is that one powerful explanation for this has to do with location. So immigrants tend to move to places in the United States that offer higher mobility for everyone. So in the past, this meant that very few immigrants settled in the South, which was a place of low upward mobility for everyone. And uh, whereas the U.S. born tend to be more rooted in place. And at some level, when you think about it, it's not very surprising because when you are born in the United States and you are born in a certain place, well, your parents are born there. Maybe your grandparents are born there too. You have friends, your networks are there. But when you're an immigrant and you moved, you already moved away from home. And so you may as well choose to settle in a place that... Uh, uh, offers mobility for you and your children. And that's exactly what we find. And so, for example, it's not the case that uh, uh, immigrants in the Bay Area are doing better than U.S. born in the Bay Area. They are doing just the same, but it's just that the immigrants are more likely to settle in the Bay Area than the average uh, U.S. born worker. That's so interesting. Just wanted to let everyone know we're having a little bit of trouble with our phones this morning. You might want to try Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or the email forum at kqed.org to share your story uh, of immigration and, or, you know, your parents' immigration and your, your own success. One uh, listener writes in, as a second-generation American, this topic is near and dear to my heart. My parents mostly worked low-wage jobs and never fully learned English. But in my household, education was the top priority. All three kids in my family have master's degrees and work in professional fields, brothers in engineer, sisters in finance. My generation was able to make big economic strides compared to how we grew up. I attribute our success to my parents instilling in us the value of education, work ethic, and ganas, the drive to succeed that I see among a lot of children of immigrants, feeling compelled to pay back the sacrifices your parents made or simply take advantage of opportunities that you were given. Uh, Leah, I wanted to ask you one question about that. What about the grandchildren of immigrants? <laughs> uh, do we do we find have you are you working on studies that are looking at you know what happens to that generation after this major uh, burst of upward mobility? Um, well, first, let me say something about um, education. So I think that your listeners' experience is very common these days um, that uh, immigrant parents um, are very, um, concerned about education and instill virtues in their children 
um, to focus on education. Um, we were able to look at this hypothesis in the historical data um, where we have information for all of our families on education levels. Mm -hmm. And what we found was quite interesting that the children of immigrants, as we've just been discussing, earn more than the children of the U.S. born um, when they're in adults. But they actually do so despite having less education. Mm -hmm. So at least historically, uh, children of immigrants were not able to achieve as many years of schooling as children of U.S. born who were raised at the same position. And some of this likely has to do with having to leave home early in order to help uh, care for the household and um, earn income to help support younger siblings. I know that that happened in my own family um, where my grandfather and his younger brother were able to enter the professions, but they were child seven and child eight in a family of eight and their older siblings had to leave school early. Um, so the, the jury is still out about the modern data. Unfortunately, we do not have information on education for our millions of records um, in the modern data, um, which comes from our tax system. And so education data is not included and we were not able to get access to information that had education included. Um, that's something we hope to look into for the future though, because um, I think that the experience of your listener um, is actually uh, quite common these days, and we'd like to explore it further. Yeah, I mean, certainly the case in my family as well. Uh, let's bring in Annette from Richmond. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just uh, wanted to share a little bit of my experience as well as a child of immigrants. Um, my parents are immigrants from Mexico, um, and we certainly have modeled this um, this sort of upward mobility in my generation. All of my siblings have degrees, including my sister and I who have master's degrees. And um, I think in kind of the, the most uh, sort of on-the-nose um, example of the American dream. My sister was actually the mayor of our hometown in <laughs> Southern California. Um, so, you know, we, we, we do see this. And I think um, a big component is not so much the sort of wanting to live up to the sacrifice of your parents, but also just being deeply inspired by their stories mm. um, and feeling deeply moved by sort of like, wow, you know, this is, this is my history. These are my people. And this is what we've come through. And so I can do it as yeah. well. Yeah, Annette, thank you so much for uh, for that call. You know, I to you know, Annette kind of gets at it with being the mayor of the hometown. You know, Ron, maybe you could speak a little bit to we're, we're talking a lot about economic upward mobility, but how do you think that intersects with you know the uh, the squishier versions of this, like you know, feeling included in American society, belonging uh, in the United States? Yes. So as we were presenting our research to our academic friends on how immigrants integrate into the labor markets and starting to talk to a larger audience, we would often get this reaction that, well, those opposed to immigrants are not really talking just about the labor market, but they complain about how immigrants don't assimilate culturally, maybe don't become American today, whereas in the past European immigrants assimilated very quickly. And we wanted to test in the data is it really true that immigrants integrate more slowly into society than, than past immigrants? And of course, it's measuring cultural assimilation is very challenging because the data on many cultural practices like the food that immigrants eat, the dress code, the accent, 
uh, are not systematically collected and can be hard to measure. And so we focus on other measures of social and cultural assimilation that we can measure in our big data, including data on learning English or leaving immigrant neighborhoods or marrying U.S.-born spouses and adopting Americanized names for, for themselves and their children. And, and overall, what we find is that in the data is that both then and now, immigrants take active steps to embrace American culture and at much the same pace today as, as in the past. Of course, this doesn't mean that immigrants completely give up their original identities. Instead, both the Ellis Island immigrants and today's immigrants preserve certain aspects of their original identities while at the same time integrating uh, more broadly uh, into American society. So let me just give you one example of our most cool measure. We look at the names that immigrant parents choose for their children. And again, the idea is that names are signals for, of mm -hmm. cultural identity. You know, they reflect a choice uh, uh, of uh, they are, and giving an American child uh, an American sounding name is financially cost free way of identifying with US culture. Uh, but of course, we know that if something, it doesn't cost money to uh, name your child, but of course, we know that it has identity costs. So, for example, you know, if I, if I uh, named my son, uh, uh, Dallas, Jim. then my yeah. Jim, my mom would be on the phone and she would be like, where is Jim coming from? How is that part of your Israeli identity? And I will have to apologize for her and my siblings, uh, you know, for my entire life. But that's exactly what we wanted to capture. The trade-off that immigrants face between maintaining their cultural identity for the benefits of assimilation. And so what we find is that immigrants give more American-sounding names to their children when they spend more years in the U.S., and they do so in the same pace that immigrants uh, uh, mm. today are doing. Mm. We're talking about the fascinating book, Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success, with the co-authors Ron Abramitsky, Professor of Economics and Senior Associate Dean for the Social Sciences at Stanford, and Leah Bustan. Professor of Economics and Director of the Industrial Relations Section at Princeton University. Phones are working. Feel free to give us a call. You can tell us, you know, how long would you say it took for your family to, quote, make it? What does that mean for you? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking about the book, Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We've got the co-authors, Leah Bustan and Ron 
Abramitsky. And of course, we are also taking your calls on your family's uh, immigration experiences. Christina in Nevada, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for calling. Well, I wanted to talk about my family's experience. I'm a third generation Mexican immigrant. My grandfather, born and raised in Guadalajara, came to California, settled in San Jose, was um, had a successful, successful business as a contractor, raised my father um, to assimilate very quickly. He actually mm-hmm. wasn't raised to speak Spanish. Um, he was raised to speak English first. And so... When I grew up, he married a white woman and uh, wanted to make sure that his children, his mother could speak to his children. So I wasn't taught Spanish at all. And I feel like I really lost out on some mm. of my cultural heritage in that in that transition of assimilation. And, you know, I'm white passing. My name's Christina, but my last name is now Hartquist. And even Haro, I'm sorry, my last name wasn't originally, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not very Spanish sounding. And so I, I, while my family has very Mexican experiences and the way we, you know, culturally, I, I don't feel, you know, I feel like I've, I've lost a lot of that cultural identity that could have been passed on to me and really given me a leg up maybe in business or in other areas. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting, you know, Christina, I just want to, I, I think, those of us who didn't, I mean, I was even born in Mexico and didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I think I just want to recognize it. It, it was a really hard experience to feel like you lost a piece of what is your your legacy and your your heritage. Um, I really feel that. I I wonder, you know, Leah, maybe you can you can take this one. It's like how how do we balance? You know, Ron was talking uh, before the break about the cultural cost, essentially, of giving your children more Americanized names and. How, how do you think about, you know, as an economic historian, that balance between holding on to culture and uh, you, the home, home country culture or sending culture, country culture, I think, as you guys call it, and, you know, just Americanizing? Thank you, Christina. Well, one really interesting example that we look at in the book is the case of this mobility program in around 1900, 1910. Um, It was called the Industrial Removal Office, which has like a horrible Orwellian Mm. sound to it. Mm -hmm. But it was a self-help group, like a charitable organization in New York City um, for Jews who had settled recently in the Lower East Side. And the idea was that the Lower East Side was very dense, unhealthy, didn't have a lot of job opportunities. It also happened to be, you know, probably the most dense area for Jewish culture in the world, Um, like 250,000 Jews living in a very close proximity to each other. But there were some economic costs, perhaps. Um, And so this group decided to fund immigrants to move all around the country and to disperse to other parts of the country. Hmm. So we followed uh, many of the participants in this program as well as their neighbors who chose not to participate um, across our census data. And we found some interesting patterns. So immigrants who left New York City did move up economically and their kids did as well. However, many immigrants who participated in the program chose to move back to New York. And those who did choose to move back to New York were those that we could see in the data started out with more Jewish sounding names. Hmm. So that was an indication to us that maybe religion and culture had been more important to their family. 
And of course, we can't observe every dimension of this, but it seemed like an interesting window into why some people chose to give up the economic benefits of leaving the enclave, you know, leaving this new Jewish homeland in New York City, um, and why some people chose to give that up and move back home. That's so interesting. Um, let's bring in uh, Natasha in San Francisco. Welcome, Natasha. Um, I listen to the forum every day, and I had to call in today. I'm hoping to add in an additional dimension to your conversation. And I know that the conversation is centered around economics, because the book that you're discussing, I believe, mm-hmm. is written by an economics professor. But I just wanted to say that some of us move here for other reasons, and not all immigrants that come to the United States come because we're poor. So mm-hmm. I moved for human rights reasons, and I wasn't poor in my country. And I've continued, you know, to, um, I think, do fine in this country. But I think sometimes there's an oversimplification because historically the American dream perhaps was a draw for many. But let's be honest, how true is the American dream today? If people want to make a bunch of money, they might want to move to some other country from their home country. But I think some people that come to the United States come because of the diversity, because of the culture, because of the promise of human rights. So I just wanted to call in and say Mm -hmm. that. Um, and I know that might not be the primary focus of your discussion today, but I just wanted to throw it in because I often have this topic with my friends who uh, often feel reduced to being thought of as low income because we are immigrants. And, you know, I think that's true for many, but not for everyone that comes here. That's very interesting. I mean, uh, Natasha, thank you for that call. And hey, thanks for listening every day. I really appreciate that. Thanks for telling us that. I, I you know, I know that this is in your book, Ron, so I'm just going to throw it to you that part of your research is actually, fascinatingly, is about immigrants showing that not all immigrants have arrived in the United States, you know, with $20 in their pocket. Right. So so, so this is a great uh, uh, point by Natasha. And in fact, uh, we, we are talking about it in our book. In fact, yes, first of all, not everybody's coming poor. Many people come, come rich, first of all. And, you know, the, there is a Immigrant workers tend to come in two groups, a high-skilled group and a low-skilled group. And high-skilled immigrants often work in science and tech and uh, and start businesses and innovate and so on. But there is even a deeper point here, which is beyond the Ancestry.com and genealogical websites that we use, we also read and listened to thousands of, of interviews in, in Ellis Island and exactly listened to the reasons of why immigrants came uh, uh, to this country and what is their story. And we tell a lot of these stories in the book. One of the things we could tell is uh, many immigrants came uh, just for the reasons that Natasha said, for example, because of human rights reasons, because they they were maybe persecuted in their home country because of pogroms, because of revolutions and wars in their home country, and, and while other immigrants came for, for economic reasons. But what's striking is that we find that those who actually came as we today we would call them as refugees at the time it wasn't like there wasn't a refugee right. program but but those who came as you know because of wars and persecution and pogroms in the country actually ended up uh, doing better in some ways mm-hmm. they ended up having better English skills they ended up uh, earning higher incomes and so uh, we find that there that those who came as uh, refugees are actually doing remarkably well and we speculate and also uh, some other research in the modern data find similar patterns. Refugees tend to do very well uh, and even better than economic immigrants. And some of the reasons for that have to do with the fact that when you come for economic reasons, 
well, you're like, well, if I make it, I'll stay. Maybe if not, I'll, I'll mm. go back. And, you know, in, every, in almost every migration wave, there are about a third of, of immigrants who end up going back to their home country. Whereas if you are a refugee, for example, there is mm. nowhere for you to go back to. So you may as well make it work in in your in your uh, home in your in uh, your host country and and that's kind of consistent with some of the things we find but definitely uh, natasha is absolutely right and 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 the book while we are economists a lot of the book is devoted to to some of these other reasons that immigrant came to the united states so interesting um we have some questions coming up about uh current uh immigration laws and and changes uh let's just get to a couple of those comments jorge writes the big difference between past immigrants and today's immigrants is that they don't come here with only $20 in their pocket, but with $2 million or more in their pockets. The EB-5 visa program allows families to buy their way into the U.S. if they invest money in a business. These immigrants have a lot more resources and opportunities compared with the immigrants who are picking our fruits and vegetables. Uh, I'll let you get, if you want to answer more on that in a second, uh, we'll get to it. Uh, but Murtaza writes... I'm an immigrant from India and work in the Bay Area in high tech. I've been in the country legally for 15 years now and have been working for 13. I would like to think I've been a model taxpaying citizen. I'm still waiting for my green card and I'm stuck in a continuous cycle of visa extensions. I and others in the same boat may not have many other options than moving back to India with my family. We still have not made it. That I think both of these uh, comments drive at kind of common sense modern immigration reform. During the Trump administration, some really, to me, mean-spirited things were done, cutting refugee um, uh, numbers down substantially and, and other things. When we look at our modern immigration laws, given the research that you've done, Leah, like, what would you do? Like, how could, how should we be, you know, Murtaza does seem like a model taxpaying, you know, resident of the United States. Like, how could we solidify the position of immigrants so that we make sure that the patterns that you've seen of upward mobility continue? Well, first of all, we have not done much on immigration policy since 1990. So at the time, we set an H-1B visa cap to allow temporary entry to work in um, high-tech, high-skilled types of occupations. And that cap on H-1B visas, the numerical cap, has remained the same since 1990. Um, It went up briefly for a few years in the late 90s and then came right back down. Um, Meanwhile, the country is 35% larger than it was in 1990 in terms of population. And we've capped the number of visas and just held it fixed. It's in amber. Um, And so um, why is that? Well, it's an interesting puzzle because uh, there's actually substantial political public opinion support uh, for immigration broadly, but specifically for highly educated, high-skilled immigration. Um, The latest Gallup poll says that 75% of Americans think that immigration broadly is good for the country. Um, But then if you drill down and you ask about high-skilled immigrants, um, there's even more support than that. Um, And so I think um, some of the blame has to go to the political idea of um, trying to go for comprehensive immigration reform. You know, take all the popular parts of immigration policy like maybe expanding the number of H-1B visas um, or solving some of the um, green card backlogs um, that your listeners talking about and bundle that in with some of the less popular parts of immigration policy. Um, And I I can see the reason for that. Which would be like a broader Um, amnesty, you're thinking. It could be something like that. Um, And, um, uh, you know, put it all together. So there's something like the DACA program, um, which um, targets um, work permits to 
undocumented children, and that group might be popular, but what about undocumented parents? So put everyone together into one bucket, high-skilled immigrants, amnesty, and so on, um, and then try to work towards comprehensive immigration reform. Mm -hmm. um, as a result, um, uh, there's been very little done um, since the 90s, and we're really um, at a stalemate right now. Um, I think that there's a lot of popular support um, for making some progress uh, in the next few years, and we really need a brave politician who's willing to put immigration at the top of the agenda. Yeah. Let's bring in Esther from San Francisco. Welcome, Esther. Hi. Thank you for having me. Um, well, I call to share my immigration story as a Jewish refugee from Egypt. I was the 1956 Sinai campaign um, when we were expelled. We waited uh, for uh, our call to come to the United States in Paris for almost three years. Hmm. And when we arrived, I was um, six and uh, integrated into the public school system uh, where myself and my siblings attended without ESL. And uh, we became upwardly mobile, um, more so than my, my parents. My mom um, was, uh, was sick, so she couldn't work until we... Uh, we, we became adults, but my dad worked uh, two and three jobs. And um, in, in Egypt, he and I think my mom were doing really well before we were expelled as Jews, but uh, he worked for his father in a textile wholesale um, business. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. here he worked as a waiter. Hmm. And as um, in addition to that, he also worked as an accountant. So I just wanted to share that, yeah. that yeah, yeah, we can be upwardly mobile. Um, my children have higher education levels, but I don't know that they're as ambitious to, um, to work two and three jobs like my father did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like uh, yeah. us siblings who, who really wanted to do to better ourselves. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting, Esther. I want to um, bounce your, your call. Thank you for calling off uh, another comment that we got, which is, you know, David writes, I'm a third generation Mexican-American living in Mountain View. In our current social, political, and economic climate, I don't think, quote, making it is our goal. Too often, assimilation is considered our mark of making it. My deepest hope is that one day we're able to embrace the power of difference and culture. Ron, do you I, I, that? Do you have other ways of measuring? I, I guess what I want to say is, I, I keep coming back to it, kind of the sense of like belonging or or you know inclusion that would make sense for people like David to have something aside from, uh, you know, just cha not changing your last name but still being a part of of the community. Like, do we can we think of a way to try and to measure that? Yes, and this is uh, and and first, by the way, I really enjoy uh, listening to to all the listeners here. It's uh, they have great stories, and uh, and uh, yes, you know, in the book we talk about how cultural assimilation is is both both ways. You know, it's a uh, Ameri. We talk about how 
uh, we talked about how immigrants might want to integrate into and become Americans and uh, into the dominant culture. But there is also there are also ways in which immigrants change for the better uh, U.S. culture uh, in general. You know, America without immigrants is America without bagels without pizza, without sushi, without tacos. And so clearly it's a much more boring uh, place than, than it is right now. So uh, it's absolutely, uh, uh, the, and this is kind of part of the reason why uh, we, in our book, we don't just like go to the dry statistics about incomes and stuff, but we also tell a lot of the of the stories and the ways in which immigrants, both in the past and today, contributed to America, both economically but also to the culture and to the diversity, and and to make uh, to make this uh, a better and more diverse place. You know, Leah, just with our last minute here, I mean, this is a this book is a remarkably optimistic take on immigration and on the United States, for that matter. Did you have that optimism going in, or did that emerge for you out of the stories in this data? I mean, there were so many things from the data that were surprises to us. Um, we did not expect that the children of immigrants today would be as upwardly mobile as the children of immigrants 100 years ago whose parents had come from Europe. Um, we thought maybe that those families would face more challenges, um, discrimination, barriers today, um, but we see that their children are doing remarkably well. Um, and the same thing was true for some of the cultural assimilation. We had heard so many stories about Americanization and conformity in the past. And today there's this idea that, you know, everyone can live within their own culture um, and celebrate their own um, uh, ways of living and values. But we actually see that a lot of immigrants today um, are taking actions to try to become American in much the same way as immigrants in the past. We've been talking about the book, Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. Really highly recommend it. We've been joined by the co-authors, Leah Bustan, Professor of Economics and Director of the Industrial Relations Section at Princeton University, and Ron Abramitsky, Professor of Economics and Senior Associate Dean for the Social Sciences at Stanford. Thanks so much for joining us, you two. Thanks a lot for having us. Thank you so much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you so much for all of your calls and comments. Sorry a little bit about the, uh, we had some phone trouble at the beginning of the show. We really appreciate you giving a call and uh, sharing those stories. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.